on a fog-covered field north of the city of Verdun, in the dying embers of the war on the Western Front, the last Allied soldier to be killed in action fell. By the autumn of 1918, American, British and Commonwealth and French armies were pushing the Germans to breaking point. What happened on the day the guns fell silent? This weekend, with Remembrance Sunday approaching, our minds turned to the fallen of both world wars and those who served and came home. Today, the commemorations take place on Remembrance Sunday, but once it was Armistice Day, and many now commemorate that too. There's been a resurgence of interest in the commemoration, particularly of the First World War, on the 11th of November in recent years. But that day, Armistice Day, commemorates an event on the 11th of November 1918 that brought the Great War on the Western Front to an end. What happened on that day? Where does the story begin? And who were the last men to fall? If we were to start somewhere on the old front line itself, possibly we'd begin this story outside the Pozieres Memorial on the Somme battlefields, a memorial that we featured in the very first episode of the old front line. This memorial commemorates thousands of British and Commonwealth soldiers who fell on the Somme battlefields in March and April of 1918 and have no known grave. These were men killed in the German Kaiserschlacht, the German Spring Offensive, one of several that broke the Allied lines and pushed through, first here on the Somme in March, then in Flanders in April, on the Chemin des Dames in May, and in the final battles around Paris in the Second Battle of the Marne in the summer of 1918. The war swung like a pendulum in 1918, and for the British and Commonwealth forces and their French and now American allies on the Western Front, it looked as if they were staring into the face of defeat in that spring. But the German army shot its bolt and by the summer it was the Allies who were on the offensive and the push to end the war began. That push started at zero hour on the 8th of August 1918, the so-called Black Day of the German army, when British guns, more than 2,000 of them, fired the preliminary bombardment, more than 500 tanks went into action and there were 1,900 aircraft in the skies above the battlefield. This was the first of the truly modern battles of the Great War, with all these arms of service on the ground and in the air coming together. The British Fourth Army, with the British units to the north, the Australians in the middle, the Canadians to the south, and the French on their flanks. The Fourth Army advanced eight miles in a day, unprecedented in the history of trench warfare, and within ten days more than 50,000 German prisoners had been taken. With the German line broken on the Somme, the French continued with the advance there, and British and Commonwealth troops, now being joined by some American forces, moved across the old Somme battlefields of 1916, once more towards the Hindenburg Line, the system of German defences that had been built during the winter of 1916-17, and after the end of the Battle of the Somme, the Germans had withdrawn into them, and the battles of 1917 had revolved around them. Once more in September and October of 1918, British and Commonwealth forces found themselves fighting over the Hindenburg Line battlefields once more. This time they were pushing the Germans back, pushing them permanently back, but at great cost. At the tip of the spear in many of these battles were Commonwealth soldiers, men from Australia, Canada and New Zealand. There was a mighty price for this victory. When we look at British war memorials, we see that they are dominated by the deaths of this period of the war, 
1918 is often the most common year found on any list or roll of honour. And when we look at the Canadians, for example, who during the 100 days from the breakout on the 8th of August until the last phase of the war, four Canadian divisions fought 47 German divisions in the field and suffered 45,835 casualties in the process. 20% of their casualties in the Great War were suffered during this period. For the Australians, it was a similar experience. Canada could replace its losses through conscription, but the Australians had voted several times against the idea of conscripts coming to the Western Front. So by October 1918, General Monash's Australian Corps was running out of men because of these extreme losses that were being suffered in what were battlefield victories, and Australia fought its last great battle at Montbriand on the 5th of October 1918 over a month before the end of the war. Australian troops then went out on rests and played only a minor role in the final operations. But it was clear to British and Commonwealth soldiers who fought in this period of the war that the German army was beat. It was now only a matter of time. The war might move on into 1919. General Haig himself wondered if this would be the case. And if it did, he knew that the Americans would take a greater and greater role in it and perhaps it would be seen as an American victory, and the sacrifices of British and Commonwealth troops might be somehow relegated, if not forgotten. But troops on the ground could see this with their own eyes when they took German prisoners, thousands of them, in that late summer and early autumn of 1918. And back in the days when I used to interview veterans who fought in this period of the war, those men of 18 in 1918, those young soldiers who fought in these battles, Aside from the usual German words of Jahr, Nein and Kamerad that they'd picked up, yes, no and comrade, they knew the word Fleisch, meat. Because if they took a German prisoner during this period of the war, he'd pop his hands up and cry, Kamerad, Fleisch bitter, and he'd be after tins of bully beef. And these were soldiers who'd been used to chomping on this stuff, they were sick of it. You can have it, mate, keep it, have as many tins as you want. But this was the state of the German army. It was broken, it was running out of manpower and it was starving in the field, just as the people at home were starving. That final month of the war saw heavy casualties, but it also saw the death of something else, the death of trench warfare on the Western Front. In the Battle of the Beauvoir von Somline in early October 1918, a battle in which the war poet Wilfred Owen, then serving with the 2nd Battalion of the Manchester Regiment, would be awarded the military cross for his bravery in storming a German machine-gun position, this saw the last German trench system on the Western Front broken, defeated, and beyond that was open ground, a few odd trenches here and there, but this was open warfare, across open fields, through copses and woods, untouched by the hand of war, fighting in villages, hand-to-hand fighting, house-to-house, street-to-street. It was a modern war, and when we examine it, it looks much more like Normandy than our traditional view of the Great War. The beginning of the end came on the 4th of November 1918, in the Battle of the Somme, the last great battle of the First World War. On this day, British and Commonwealth forces, advancing from the French-Belgian border in the north to the turn of the Sombre Canal in the south, where their lines joined with the French army, attacked on a wide front. More men went over the top on the 4th of November 1918 than on the first day of the Battle of the Somme, but less than 2,000 were killed, not the 20,000 of two years before. The war had indeed moved on, but still there was a price to pay, a price in men's lives. And among the human cost of that price was Wilfred Owen, killed 
assembling his men on the banks of the Sombre Canal as they attempted to cross. Arguably, his death in action sealed the immortality of that greatest of the war poets. Beyond the Sombre Canal, the advance continued into Belgium. The Canadians had conquered the ground beyond Valenciennes, supported by the British on their flanks, ahead of them in the distance was the city of Mons, where the war had begun four years before. But there were other dimensions to the war that were taking place beyond the battlefield, events that would dictate the outcome of this conflict. By the autumn of 1918, it was clear that the German army's position on the Western Front was looking more and more catastrophic, and that while the war might continue, defeat looked imminent. The German army in the field was starving, but so too were civilians at home. Allied submarine blockades had cut off Germany's ability to feed its own population, and now there was open revolution in the streets. Kaiser Wilhelm II abdicated and fled to neutral Holland, where he'd remained for the rest of his life. The provisional government that took over consulted with the generals and realised that the situation was hopeless, and a group of German parliamentarians, led by Matthias Erzberger, crossed the French lines in November 1918 to seek a meeting with the commander-in-chief of Allied forces, Marshal Foch. Those parliamentarians crossed the line at a place called La Capelle. A memorial was later built on that spot, because here the seeds of the armistice were sown. The Germans destroyed it, the occupying German forces, in the Second World War, but it was rebuilt and can be seen on the old front line today. That group of parliamentarians met with Foch. He was not prepared to compromise. France had lost more than a million dead in this war so far, and much of northern and eastern France lay in ruins and was occupied. The Germans attempted to negotiate with Foch, but for him there was only one outcome to this unconditional surrender, and eventually that was agreed on the 10th of November. With the end of the conflict now imminent, signals were sent out along the whole Allied line to British and Commonwealth, to French and American forces, indicating that the war would end the next day. The armistice was formally signed at five o'clock on the 11th of November 1918, but symbolically it would come into effect at the 11th hour of the 11th day of the 11th month. 11am on the 11th of November. So that meant that even with the act of surrender signed, there was more than five hours of the war to continue. And although messages had been received at all of the headquarters, the way those headquarters reacted to this information varied greatly. And what we'll look at next is the difference in the experience of British and Commonwealth troops, and in that the separate approach of the Canadian Corps under Arthur Curry, but also the Americans and the French. What happened to these men? in those last moments of the Great War. In the British sector of the Western Front on the 11th of November 1918, the British Army, after four years of war, you could argue, was weary. No commander on the ground wanted to be the man that sent his soldiers into action and got them killed in the last moments of the war. So you see, on the whole, British units pulling back once the news of the armistice came through the night before on the 10th of November. Essentially, most divisions, most units on the ground, went into a form of holding pattern. Quite a lot of them fired off ammunition, artillery did that, machine gunners, but there was no serious fighting, no attempt to pursue the enemy, no attempt to take the enemy head on. 
Now, one exception to that was in the sector where the Royal Naval Division was located. The Royal Naval Division had been formed right at the beginning of the Great War on an idea of Winston Churchill, who was then Lord of the Admiralty. He had too many sailors and not enough ships to put them on, and paying their wages, he thought he'd better do something with them. So he formed the Royal Naval Division, and they fought at Antwerp in 1914, at Gallipoli in 1915, and then on the Western Front from 1916 until the end of the war. And on this last day of the war, they were in action. They were on the flanks of the Canadian Corps, and on the 11th of November, in the last three and a half hours of battle, they advanced over 9,000 yards. Several battalions of the division were in action. 11 men were killed, 130 wounded, and that's in a period from the evening of the 10th until the morning of the 11th of November. Now on the old front line, the battlefields of the Great War, that brings us to Nouvelle Communal Cemetery, not far from Mons, on the outskirts of Mons really. And you enter this via a big brick archway with a strong, heavy bronze gate. And you push it open and it's a civilian cemetery. So most of the graves in here are of Belgians who have lived in this community over generations. And this is their last resting place. But there amongst these ornate Belgian graves is the familiar splash of white stone from the Commonwealth War Graves Commission. And there are graves in the very beginning of the war in here from August 1914. But what's of interest to us is four graves side by side of able seaman David Batts of the Anson Battalion, Private John Joseph Murray of the 2nd Royal Irish Regiment, Private John Stoneham of the same unit, able seaman Harold Edgar Walpole, also of the Anson Battalion Royal Naval Division. And these men buried side by side represent some of those last casualties of the Royal Naval Division on that final day of the war. Now, the 2nd Royal Irish Regiment is not something you'd associate with the Navy, but by 1918, the Royal Naval Division, despite its name, had several army battalions in it, and the 2nd Royal Irish was one of those. The interesting thing about these four graves of these last four men killed in this sector is that they represent the four parts of the United Kingdom, Great Britain, Ireland, Scotland and Wales. So here in those dying embers of the Great War, in those last moments, the United Kingdom's story, its loss, its sacrifice, is brought together on the altar of these four graves of these four men, four ordinary men in these extraordinary circumstances of the Great War. But these men weren't the last to die. Also in the sector where the Canadians were in action on that last day of the war were a number of British cavalry regiments. Cavalry in the Great War had seen its conflict turn a full circle from the War of Movement in 1914 to static warfare when cavalry regiments were dismounted and used as infantry to now in this final phase of the war on the Western Front, cavalry once more were at the forefront. They were being used essentially as reconnaissance troops, scout forward of the main advance, rapidly on horseback, bump the enemy, see where they were located, report back. And one such cavalry patrol from the 5th Royal Irish Lancers encountered the Germans near the Bois de Havre, close to the village of Saint-Symphorien. As a patrol moved forward, they came under German machine gun fire and George Edwin Ellison from Leeds was killed. A minor, pre-war regular soldier who had served in the British Army, gone on to the reserve and then recalled in 1914, had followed that familiar pattern of the cavalry from open warfare. He'd been at Mons in 1914, gone through all those aspects of trench warfare, experienced gas, seen tanks, lived in the rat-filled trenches of the Western Front, and after four years of war, 
he's killed close to the ground where he'd been four years previously, in August 1914. Leeds, where Ellison came from, was one of those cities that contributed a volume of the national role of the Great War. This was produced in the 1920s and the idea was to publish a volume for every town and city in Britain and list all those had served. But this was an almost impossible task and the catch was you had to pay to have an entry in the volumes that were published so not everybody is included. Ellison, however, is listed and his entry reads Already serving at the outbreak of war, he at once proceeded to France and fought in the retreat from Mons. He also played a prominent part in engagements at Ypres, Armentiers, La Basse, Lens, Luz and Cambrai, but was unhappily killed only an hour and a half before the armistice came into force. He is buried at St. Jean and was entitled to the Mons Star and the General Service and Victory Medals. The path of duty was the way to glory, is the quote that was listed at the end and he's shown as living at 49 Edmund Street off York Street, Leeds. This indication of when he died gives us the evidence to suggest that Ellison is the last British soldier to be killed in action on the Western Front in the Great War. He was subsequently buried at St. Symphorian British Cemetery. Opposite him is the grave of John Parr of the Middlesex Regiment. For many years he has been accepted as the first British Army casualty of the Great War on the Western Front although there is some doubt about this. But whether he is or not, Parr and the others buried around him were killed in the opening moments of the war. And here, a few feet of Belgian soil separates those graves with that of Ellison. A few feet of ground, four years of war, and nearly a million dead. The Canadian formations that made up the Canadian Corps under the command of Sir Arthur Currie were part of the overall British Expeditionary Force, the BEF. They had been part of that tip of the spear, part of that continual advance from the Somme in August to smashing the Hindenburg Line in September and October of 1918, and then in the open warfare in the case of the Canadians, from Valenciennes across to Mons. Currie's men reached the outskirts of Mons, on the 10th of November, the day before the war came to an end. And for Curry, here was that symbolic moment. Here was where the war had begun four years before, and for him it was important to end it here. Curry mistrusted the Germans, and wasn't sure that they would abide by the terms of the armistice. But on the morning of the 11th of November, he sent a symbolic attack into Mons. The 42nd Raw Highlanders, the Black Watch of Canada, advanced near the railway station, Canadian units then screened the city of Mons to the south and the east, and the 28th Battalion Canadian Infantry advanced and sent patrols out from the village of Havre across the Mons-Condé Canal to the small village of Ville-sur-Haine. Here a patrol entered a street just beyond one of the canal bridges. The people of this village were coming out of their terraced houses, thanking the Canadians for liberating the area after four years of German occupation. But Germans were still present, and a shot rang out. A bullet struck the chest of George Lawrence Price, a Canadian conscript who had been at the front for some months. He collapsed into the street, and his comrades dragged him into a nearby house. A young Belgian woman ran across to see if she could assist, but Price died, and as some of his mates looked up, they saw that the clock on the mantelpiece indicated that it was 10.58, two minutes before the armistice would come into effect. 
This meant that George Lawrence Price was the last Canadian killed in action in the Great War and the last British and Commonwealth casualty. Price's death marked the final sacrifice in Canada's contribution to victory in 1918, a hard-won victory, costly one, of which Price was one of thousands of Canadian soldiers who had been killed or wounded in those final battles on the Western Front. Under Curry's command, they had become a formidable and modern army, fighting truly modern battles and winning them. And as the final moments of the war ticked away, what would the sacrifice of men like George Lawrence Price mean for a new Canada, a Canada beyond the Great War? In many respects, France is the forgotten ally in 1918. French poilus, French soldiers, assist us in so many battles, in March and April and May of 1918, when the Germans were breaking through and trying to split our forces. On that black day of the German army, on the 8th of August 1918, French troops had fought alongside the Canadians in the advance on the Amiens-Montdidier road and continued to take Montdidier and later Saint-Quentin, Saint-Quentin. By November 1918, their front was close to the River Meuse and not far from the old fortress city of Sedan, a place synonymous with the previous war, the Franco-Prussian War. Here, for France, those last moments of the war would be fought in crossing the Meuse and pushing to the high ground beyond. One of the units involved in the fight was the 415th Regiment of Infantry, and one of its runners, Augustine Trebuchon, was given the task of carrying a message to the forward posts near the village of Vrenye-Meuse, overlooking the Meuse River. He was a runner, similar to the runners we've seen depicted recently in the film 1917, and as he took his message forward, like so many runners in the Great War, he was killed by a gunshot wound to the head at 10.45, just 15 minutes before the armistice came into effect. For France, Augustine Trebuchon was the last poilu to be killed in action on the battlefield. When you travel to this part of the old front line, and you visit Trebuchon's grave in the military cemetery at Vrenyemeuse, you see that on his grave is not the date of the 11th of November, but the 10th, and this seems to have been something that France did at the end of the war, perhaps to disguise the true scale of the casualties in those last moments of the war, the French government somehow redated the men from the 11th to the 10th to hide what had happened on the banks of the Meuse in the last 15 minutes of La Grande Guerre. And finally, that brings us to the American sector. The American Expeditionary Force, or the AEF, had been advancing solidly since the start of the Meuse-Argonne Offensive on the 26th of September 1918. Some American units had fought alongside the British, or alongside the French, but the bulk of the AEF was under its own command, that of General Pershing, advancing through the Argonne Forest up towards the Meuse River on the flanks of the French, and its right-hand positions close to the famous city of Verdun where that terrible battle had been fought in 1916. In many respects, these are forgotten battles in America today. Few Americans realise the contribution of their forces in this final phase of the Great War, or the casualties that were suffered, tens of thousands of battlefield deaths in those last months. At the start of that offensive, the Americans still had a lot to learn, and they paid for that learning process with their casualties. But in those 47 days, they broke through line after line of German defences, and proved that they too were part of a modern army on the battlefield. They reached the banks of the Meuse on the night of the 10th, 
and Pershing decided that he too was distrustful of the Germans. He would rather attack a position under his own terms and take it than let the Germans just sit there and be forced to take it anyway under their terms rather than his. So on the morning of the 11th of November 1918, he ordered that his troops should advance and continue to fight right up to the last moment. Units crossed the Meurs, took towns, in one case to capture a bathhouse, often at great cost. American marines were killed as they crossed footbridges over the river, others in the streets of towns whose names today are largely forgotten. North of Verdun, close to the site where the battle had begun in February 1916, here America's last act of the Great War for Civilization took place in the thick fog that encompassed this battlefield on that morning of the 11th of November. The 313th Infantry Regiment, part of the 79th Division, a regiment recruited in Baltimore, included one of Baltimore's own, Henry Gunther, advancing towards some unseen, distant German positions. They could see the tracers coming through the fog of German machine guns, the dull tap-tap of the weapons firing blind across the line of advance where the American soldiers were. These doughboys knew that the war was almost finished, but still they carried on, and at the head of them somewhere was Gunther, who walked straight into the path of that machine gun fire. It was said that as he fell and his body touched the soil of France, the war came to an end. So he died at 10.59 on the 11th of November, in the last minute of the war. And it was a doughboy, one of Black Jack Pershing's men, who became the last Allied soldier to die on the Western Front. The vast majority of those who were there on the last day of the war lived to tell the tale. Most men came home, and only a handful fell on that last day. The survivors, with the war at an end, wished to celebrate. And this is an account of a veteran of the King's Own Scottish Borderers, recorded in the 1980s, of his memory of the final day of the war. Well, we were not actually in action the day before Armistice. We were lying in rest just outside Courtrai, and we would be advancing probably within the next 48 hours. Uh, where we were, it was just on the outskirts of Courtrai, and it was absolutely uh, not actually deserted, but you never saw anybody about. You knew that the civilians were there. There were no lights in the houses or anything, and we were quartered on the top floor of a biggish sort of building. We'd gone to bed, and it would be roughly about half past nine at night, and the only illumination we had was an odd candle stuck in a bottle here and there. And we were getting down to on the floor with a palliace of straw, and I suddenly heard the pipes playing. They were playing the regimental march with the King's Own Scottish Borderers, the Blue Bonnets. And I thought, well, this is a bit unusual, pipes at that time of night. So I said, hello, listen, there's the pipe, surely. So I said, put the light out, and somebody blew the candle out, and I opened one of the fan lights, all of which had been painted with thick black paint. And I looked out, and whereas before, the whole place had been black and deserted, now all the windows and doors were open, and the lights were on everywhere, and the streets were packed with a screaming mob of soldiers and civilians, men, women, and children. And out of the noise, I picked up the French... Le guerre fini, le guerre fini. I said, hey, the bloody war's finished. And so we hurriedly pulled on trousers and so on, 
And what was causing the noise, the pipes, was our pipe major walking up and down, and all he got on was his shirt and a pair of boots and a set of pipes. <laughs> and eventually, we marched down to the end of the main street where the battalion headquarters was and the officers met, and the colonel came out on the veranda with the adjutant, and he held his hand up, and eventually he got Charles, and he says, Well, lad, you'll be glad to know we've reached the end. Tomorrow morning at 11 o'clock, the Germans are going to sign an armistice with the British, so it means the war is finished. And there was one mighty cheer went up, and from then on, the wine flowed like river water. That's what I remember of the end of the war. That evening, back home in England, a young officer called Henry Williamson, then serving with the Bedfordshire Regiment Langard Fort in Suffolk, remembered watching his friends celebrate the end of the war. They were jumping into the sea, firing up flares, but Williamson sat there alone. He remembered the friends that he'd marched the war with in 1914 as a young territorial in the London Rifle Brigade. He recalled that day of Christmas 1914 in No Man's Land and the Christmas Truce. He remembered the mules of his transport section of the Machine Gun Corps carrying the ammunition up Station Road at Beaumont Hamel on the Somme in that cold winter of 1916-17 and the fight at Bullecourt the following spring. These memories were fresh and raw and Williamson thought, how strange, tonight the old battlefields will be silent. No flares there, no crack of rifles or the staccato of machine guns or the thump of shells and the crump of a bombardment and the hiss of gas. Just silence. Silence. And in that silence, he thought, never again. It must never happen again. And men like him, the survivors, sometimes the forgotten survivors of the Great War, overshadowed by the dead, forever in their shadow, went home to try and live normal lives. Williamson sought solace in nature, in fictionalising his war. Others kept it deep inside, perhaps to the very end. The day the guns went silent had brought their war to an end, but the old front line was still there, and with it those lands soldiers had once despised took on new meaning. They were the altars of sacrifice. This was the ground where the silent cities would stand and where pilgrims would walk, and the legacy of the Great War began. And it's that legacy that we think of as the silence envelops us as we think of those days we've spent and all that we've seen along the old front line. You've been listening to an episode of The Old Front Line with me, military historian Paul Reed. You can follow me on Twitter at Somcor. You can follow the podcast at Old Frontline Pod. Check out the website at oldfrontline.co.uk where you'll find lots of podcast extras and photographs and links to books that are mentioned in the podcast. And if you feel like supporting us, you can go to our Patreon page, patreon.com slash oldfrontline, or support us on Buy Me A Coffee at buymeacoffee.com slash oldfrontline. Links to all of these are on our website. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you again soon.